Welcome to the 10 Golden Rules of Internet Marketing for Law Firms podcast, featuring the latest strategies and techniques to drive traffic to your website and convert that traffic into clients. Now, here's the founder and CEO of 10 Golden Rules, Jay Berkowitz. Well, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Whatever time this podcast finds you, welcome to the 10 Golden Rules of Internet Marketing for Law Firms podcast. We have a great guest today. Get to that in just two seconds. I just want to tell you, if you're listening to this live sometime in November, definitely come to our webinar, November 29th. It's our 2024 planning webinar. You definitely want to get a head start on your 2024 plans. We've got great templates for how to do planning for your business. We're going to focus on law firms, but we're going to share with you uh, the strategies we use at 10 Golden Rules. And our 2023 planning webinar from last year has been viewed 22,000 times on YouTube. So the content's great. It's refreshed for 2024, and we hope to see you on November 29th. Now, as I mentioned, great guest today on the podcast. Bill Biggs is one of the most respected law firm leaders throughout our industry, He's been COO or CEO for several very, very successful firms. Worked with a couple of my friends, the guys at Daniel Stark and Jeffrey Glassman. He's the leadership strategist at Vista Consulting. You know, just awesome law firm leader. And he spoke on day one at the GLM Great Legal Marketing Summit in Orlando. I was actually on stage right after him. Tough act to follow, by the way. And I took extensive notes during Bill's presentation when we sat down We delved into all these topics. We talked about mindset. We talked about law firm growth strategies, organizational design, building great culture, and the three beliefs. So if you enjoy this show, please do do us a favor. Give us a five-star review on your pod, wherever you're listening to this, and um, love you for that. And without further ado, here's Bill Biggs. Well, Bill, thank you very much for doing this. You know, I really, really enjoyed your talk yesterday, as we discussed last night. And uh, we're here together at GLM Great Legal Marketing. Mm-hmm. And Bill and I went <laughs> one, two. So he was the, the first speaker and I was the second one out of the gate. And I really enjoyed his stuff. So I wanted to share it with you all. So, Bill, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and, and what got you on, on stage? Well, Jay, first, thanks for having me. Love what you're doing and enjoyed your time uh, on stage and hearing all the expertise that you bring to the industry. You know, what got me on stage, uh, the kindness of Ben Glass, I guess, or maybe it was a bad decision, the foolishness of Ben Glass, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, no, Ben, I'd heard his name for years and years in the industry and appreciated, you know, the reputation that he had. He and I met at NTL in Florida. We hit it off, as he mentioned when he introduced me, just kind of an immediate kindred sense about what we believed and about 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 people about this industry about what good we can do and so he came and spoke at the Vista Law Firm Leadership Summit that I hosted and he asked me to come down here and and it was a privilege to do so and so meeting a ton of great firms uh, new people uh, kind of a different tribe and the opportunity to talk about culture and leadership and infrastructure of a firm is always very meaningful to me. So great opportunity. Awesome. Well, you know, I took a whole bunch of notes. 
So I'm going to sort through this and, and try and get some really great content for y'all listening today. So you said two things increase case value. So why don't we do that right out of the gate? A lot of the folks listening are personal injury, but not exclusively. So, and I hope you recall these because sometimes, <laughs> sometimes I speak to slides right. <laughs> and I, but you know, what was the first thing that increases case value? Well, you know, and this is stuff that has been measured. This is stuff that's been looked at. One of the first things is is pure attorney talent. You know, the talent of the attorney. And I think you could define talent a lot of ways. A lot of things might go into that because you can become, I think, in this context, what I mean by the talent of the attorney, that may include experience. That may include, you know, obviously high intelligence, but really the skill of the attorney at being able to build a case. And uh, that's a key piece to me. It's not just, oh, well, here are the facts and this is probably what it's worth. And that's a very defense-minded way to look at it. That's what that's the way they want us in PI to look at it. But when you can look at a case with vision for what it could be, what it can be, the pieces that are there and a curiosity to know what else is there that I don't know, that I need to know in order to build the case. Uh, attorneys and their teams who have that ability and that viewpoint, that perspective, bring enormous value to cases. And it, it's probably not a subtlety that part of that, part of the talent of the attorney is the reputation of the attorney. And what I hear all the time is like, if a firm is, is not shy to go, to go to trial and the firm has a reputation for going to trial and being good and being talented, and doing their diligence and bringing the experts and you know, all the other parts to winning, that the talent is a broader category than just the talent of the individual. It's 100%. The, it's, the and it's the reputation of the talent, right? Yeah. And, and, and I love this stuff. I could go down so many rabbit holes in what you said, and they're all good. Yes. A, a firm that is, has a reputation for fighting, a reputation for aggression in the way they, they view cases, a reputation for uh, truly zealously advocating for their clients, and then very specifically litigating. A firm that will take cases into litigation is not afraid to, afraid to go to trial, even if they're not successful at trial all the time. If the insurance company, if the defense side knows that you will go to trial and that you will be aggressive, um, they document that. They know that. It goes in the book and it will up what I have seen over and over and over again in firms. When a firm decides to be more heavy litigation, to take cases to trial, and then particularly if they are successful at doing it, which they will become so even if they have a few early struggles, they'll learn. Well, then they start to see even better offers, better value offered at the pre-litigation or at the claims level. So I always say, look, if you'll become a highly skilled litigation firm, even though you may be built uh, as a high volume pre-litigation firm, you're going to start seeing that pay off even on the claims or, or pre-litigation side because they know the other side knows, well, if we don't play ball on the front side, they're going to get us on the back side. That's awesome. And, and what's the second thing that increases case value? So this is, this is fascinating. Um, but there's a science behind it. It's attorney client contact, a frequency, a consistence of attorney client contact. And you say, well, why, why is it? What are the, what's the science behind it? What's the rationale? Pretty simple. We need to be able to encourage 
our clients to do everything they can on their side of the equation, right? To make sure they get the treatment they need, to make sure that they get better, to make sure that they fully understand how their body has changed or what true impact the crash or the injury has had uh, on their life. If they trust the attorney, if they, from the outset, I'm big on initial attorney calls. In fact, I like to see them in person or via Zoom. So I, I call it a face-to-face. The trust with the attorney, with that client, will lead to higher compliance, will lead to when the attorney is, is contacting them later on, even when the rest of the team, the paralegal or the mid-management coordinator, who, whoever is contacting them, the, the, the client is going to be more responsive. So you get higher client responsiveness, higher client compliance if you build that trust through contact. And then in that ongoing contact, I like to have standards for how often in various phases of the case that that the attorney is contacting the client. If that client is hearing from the attorney on a routine basis and the attorney is skilled in the way they manage those conversations, they're finding out more key information. How did this wreck really affect you? How are you really doing? Right? An attorney can, can get into the life and the heart of the client and learn where the value drivers are. And so often we just, we hear the meds, we hear the, the damages, and then we just try to you know, send a demand, all that when there are so often key pieces of information that we could have found out if there was trust and if there was more communication between the client and the attorney. And, and just by the way, I, paralegals really drive our industry. What, a, what an incredible role they play in all of this. But I would say that as important as it is for paralegals to be in contact with the client, there's no substitute for an attorney-client contact, well, an attorney-client trusting relationship. Fantastic. So you told a great little case study. You joined a firm and 12X the revenue in 10 years. Um, and you had uh, three, three or so components to that success. What were some of those components of that big win? I mean, 12X is awesome. Yeah. Well, it, you know, and while there are three components, it really, at the end of the day, I would say that um, the first or the, the preeminent one is putting together the right team. And, of course, my, my mantra is love your team, love your people, and demand high performance. I just believe if you if you choose the right people, you hire well, you train them well, you help them become, and one of, one of those three pillars is a team of true believers, uh, help them understand the nobility of our work, have talented people, smart people, driven people, people who are in cultural alignment, share your values. That's what I mean when I say a true believer. You put that team together and you're going to be you're setting yourself up for success. That's a big, big piece of success. Another, Before you go on to the second yeah. one, you know, it's easy to say hire, but it, it's a pretty darn hard, hard thing to get right. Yeah. What are some of the components of hire that work in this environment? Yeah. So while just like many owners and firms, I, I'm, I'm a believer in having people in office. I prefer that, but, be, but that's just because I'm, I'm relational. I like the energy of feeling people around in the office, but we are in different times. And so hiring remotely and giving people flexibility in the way they work, I think is a reality. And I think the positive to that is that that opens the talent base. Now our talent pool is anywhere, which is a benefit. So first, 
I want to attract the the best people. I want to make our ads, uh, the way we put it out there, our recruiting. I want to recruit to our values. I want to recruit to the nobility and the the purpose of the work we do because I think really good people are drawn to that. They don't just want a good job that pays the bills. They want to make good money, but they want to work someplace that they feel like they're doing something that makes a difference in the world. And I think we have that on a silver platter. So you recruit to purpose. You recruit for people who want to contribute to the world. The fact that now we can do that across the country in some instances across the world is fabulous. The second thing of that hiring piece for me is uh, what I shared from the stage, the the shadow process. Uh, And we don't have time for the details of that. But basically the concept is you bring people either in person or via Zoom and you get them face to face with multiple members of your team. And you help your team members understand what it is you're looking for, not, oh, well, this person has four ex- four years experience as a paralegal. I'm not looking for the, that data from the shadow process. I'm looking for, is this a person our team believes will make us better? Are they culturally aligned? Is this a person you want working next to you? Is this a person you trust? Is this a person that you think cares about what they do? So. When you bring a person in, they get to that phase of the interview process and you have four or five of your team members who understand what it is we're looking for, spend 30 to 45 minutes with that candidate and can come away from there saying, yeah, this person is a stud. They're going to make us better. When you have all four or five of those people say that, you're probably going to have an extremely strong hire. Retention goes up. Satisfaction, team member satisfaction goes up. Great people like to work with other great people. And your team now has played a huge part in bringing new people into the family. And therefore, they will want to support the success of that new team member. So instead of suspicion, instead of who's the new guy, instead of (laughs) is that girl here to take my job? Now you have four or five people already and everybody else in the firm knows this is our process. So they know now every time we hire somebody, they had to get advocacy. They had to get what, what I call the thumbs up from four or five people. Because by the way, my rule is if it's not unanimous, then we don't hire them. So they meet with those four shadow hosts. Those shadow hosts share their information with me. I'm the gatekeeper. I'm the final person who meets with that candidate. And at the you know by that time, I've already heard from those, those hosts as to what they think about the individual. They have to be a unanimous yes. And so that's a pretty high bar. And, but when you do have that bar, then when we hire that person, you tell them that you tell them, look, in order for you to be getting this offer, you, all those five people you met with today all had to say, yes, they love that. That builds them up. And by, by their first day, the first day they start, they're excited and they've got five people who have put their reputation on the line for the success of that individual. So I love that. It sets you up for success. You know, I try and get at the relationship piece in, in interviewing when I, I have the team interview our prospective employees. Yeah. And now that we're in the Zoom remote environment, I give them a couple of questions, mm-hmm. you know, and I say, you know, if, if we were in the physical office and you had to be at the desk next to this person, would you enjoy yeah. working beside this person? Or I also ask them to project because we do get together a couple times a year. You know, if we get together for the company holiday party, and you have to sit beside this person for two or three hours at dinner, 
would you enjoy their company? And it really pushed, you know, to the best of our ability, it pushes them to try and answer that question. Is there any other good way to, to get to that? Yeah, I, I always tell my folks, I, I always say, hey, I want you to find out, you know, as much as you can, as much as you feel comfortable with uh, about what, how does this person handle relationships? How do they, um, you know, I always ask them, tell me about what went good and what didn't go well at your previous work situation. If all they can do is, you know, tear down their old place, then that doesn't bode well. I like to ask people, one of my questions is often, tell me about the last conflict you had with someone else and, and how it resolved or did it resolve. That tells you a lot, um, even how they respond to that question, because you, sometimes you can see just the, uh-oh, <laughs> the facial expression of, yeah. ooh, that last I conflict. I have a lot that, of conflicts. Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> or I have a lot of unresolved ones yeah. that just recently happened. So uh, to me, there's so many, I think, success high performance in the workplace is so often tied to emotional and relational factors as much or more as it's tied to aptitude, training, where you went to college. Those things, yeah, we need smart people. We need, and it's even better if they're smart and experienced in what we do. But most of the time when someone doesn't work out, it often has to do with their inability emotionally and relationally to apply their intelligence to exercise and reach their full aptitude potential. That's what I've seen for my entire career as the primary constraints of most people and why they don't do well uh, so in their jobs. I asked a question and I sidetracked you. Yeah, yeah. My fault. Uh, a 12X to firm in 10 yep. years. First thing is like the people, the culture, the team. Second thing. Uh, aggression, and you could combine that with being a true believer in the client and in the work we do. But very specifically, you have to be aggressive towards cases and and, and towards the, signing cases. Towards towards, yeah, sure, towards signing cases, large but settlements also, or, or victories. Yes, 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 all all of the above. But where I think it really, really day after day makes a difference is zealous advocacy is aggressive defending uh, our clients from insurance companies that are trying to take advantage of them. So that, you know, that's a big, big piece. So I want every attorney, you know, I'm, I'm, as I said, from the stage, I'm, I'm cautious, I'm skeptical of hiring defense attorneys, unless they're leaving that side because they want to come over and they've had a problem internally with maybe even ethically in their minds with, you know, trying to keep back money from genuinely hurt people. So I just think being aggressive every day on case value, deprogramming people from their ideas about how value should be set on a case. Uh, we've learned from the other side by default, uh, if by default on our side that they, I believe, know that it's happening and they do it intentionally, which is wise strategy on their part. But adjusters train our attorneys on case value. Shouldn't be that way. So aggression would be one of the second pieces. It's interesting. One of my first lawyer clients, a guy named Stephen Schwartzapple, brand is fighting for you in New York City, mm -hmm. big PI firm. And he was a, a child of a family that had been taken advantage of by the insurance companies. And mm -hmm. he should have been taken much better care of as he tells the story. And then his first job out of law school, he worked for an insurance company. And they sat him down at a desk and gave him a pile of files and said, you know, just deny all these claims. 
Yeah. And that was literally that, that like his okay. job was just figure out a way to deny every single claim. Yeah. And so it made him sick. And then he knew why he had the miserable and poverty childhood. And then he resolved to fight, you know, his, his brand is called fighting for you yep. for that reason. So, you know, I, I love that story. Okay. Stay on tack. So mm-hmm. you, you 12X to firm, culture, aggression. Yeah. Last thing uh, is what I call an ownership mentality. And look, you could tie that back in. These are all interconnected, right? They're not isolated silos of what I think we to build it. But you put together that great team. They're aggressive about what we do. And then you want every one of them over time to see this place as their own, that they see the firm as their own. I tell them, I want you to walk around here like you own the place. <laughs> Meaning if there's, if there's paper on the floor, pick it up. Even if it's not your job, if the toilets need to be scrubbed, scrub the toilets. And yet let's also practice what we call highest and best use. Let's put people in their highest skill level, doing the things that, that they can do best and that bring the most value. When people really care about the place that they work and they think the place that they work, they feel the place that they work cares about them and they own the place, then you can trust as the owner, you can, you can go off and take a vacation. You can go off and live the life that you deserve after all this hard work. If you don't have that, if you don't have people who have an ownership mentality, then you live in fear constantly that your presence is necessary for success. And uh, that's an unnecessary prison. Thank you. So we're, we're getting into a lot of lists, but I, I took notes <laughs> <laughs> and then, and he gave us five components of organizational design. The first was culture. And you touched on that a little bit. You want to just highlight that? Yeah. I, and, and of course, culture is such a big thing. But at the end of the day, I would say it's this. Or this is how I measure it now. This is what I'm looking for. And I, and I think this would be new information for a lot of people because culture has largely gone undefined. It's a word that everybody uses and not many folks really truly have an idea. Uh, and I, there's definitely not a consensus on, well, what exactly does this mean? So for me, after lots of you know, study and research and really thinking about this, ruminating on this idea, I think it comes down to this. If you as an organization, as a firm, have people who are deeply saturated, deeply believe in the purpose, deeply believe in each other, which, as I mentioned yesterday, are, is the toughest one, and deeply believe in the client, which is different from the purpose. Is similar, but different. When you have those things at a high level, when your team believes that, and there are ways that you can infuse that, train that, teach that. When you have that, you have strong culture. Culture is such a tricky thing. Um, I, th- I feel like we have great team culture now, and part of it is just taking time with the team mm-hmm. because we're all remote now. And so on Zooms, we, we spend time and we consciously ask everyone how their weekend was, yep. ask everyone how things are going what are they watching on netflix what are they reading and we have a book club but it's such a amorphous thing in the remote environment but you know how do you define a culture that you want for a company yeah that's so good and and i'm a big believer that design is critically necessary as you heard me say yesterday uh, uh, a great leader is part of the role they play is as architect And so knowing what you want out of your culture is the first step. And I think that needs to start with what are the things that we most deeply believe, 
right? If I could start a culture in a firm from scratch, I would say we're going to reinforce strongly our purpose, how much we care about each other, how much we're going to have each other's backs, how much we respect one another, how much we enjoy being around. And we're going to be diligent to hire people that fit into that so that we can really enjoy them. And then we're going to believe in the client, right? So you design your culture, you plan your culture around the things that are most important to you. Again, an overused word, but still a very powerful concept, core values, the things that the most deeply held beliefs, and you build everything around that. Everything points to great, those. Great things, answer. Right? That's, yeah. the, that's, cool. that, that's where you start uh, with EOS, the that's entrepreneurial right. operating system. And we've got a couple of great sessions coming up on that in the next few weeks and months, both on the web, Tech yeah, Golden webinar and this uh, podcast. So five components of organizational design. First was culture. Second was the org chart. Yeah. A lot of firms don't even have an org chart. I think the org chart helps you for so many reasons. It provides the framework, right? You can see how everything fits together. You can see who reports to who. You can see what department is. And, uh, you know, in the best version of it is what we call a functional accountability chart. And it is based on, I always tell a firm when I'm walking them through planning or, or through kind of a remodel or redesign that the functional accountability chart is developed not with, okay, here's the name of this person that's been with the firm for 12 years. How do we figure out where he fits in? It's built with saying, when we are our ideal self as an organization, what roles do we need? to get to make the thing run. What are the roles? What do they do? How do they all fit together? Fascinating to me how many firms don't have that. And when you don't have that, you are just basically throwing stuff together and it's not well-designed. It's not intentional. It's not strategic. And you find yourself creating something that is kind of a blob and amoeba yeah. and it's slow and it's clunky and it has problems and Communication is typically very poor, but when you can visualize it, you've yeah. done it intentionally through the org chart or functional accountability chart, and it allows you to be scalable well, as well. You, you asked a great question yesterday. You said, when's the last time you did your org chart? Mm -hmm. And fortunately for me, my answer was very recently, you know, we're recording this October 13th, Friday the 13th, lucky day <laughs> that I got yeah. you, Bill. But I recently did the org chart because I'm looking at 2024 planning already. And it's amazing when you actually sit down and structure it out. And I plotted out some of our open and upcoming positions. You know, you see how it really helps you plan, you know, and budget and, and look, you know, what actually seeing it visually is very, very beneficial. And the other thing I realized is I certainly haven't shared this at least, you know, for 12 months with the team. And if I can't really visualize it, I'm sure my team has much less Absolutely. of an idea. I mean, everybody knows who reports to who, but once you see it on paper, it's really valuable. I, I find actually that the team loves stuff like that. And a lot of times ownership leadership doesn't realize that that type of communication showing everybody, Hey guys, here's our newest work chart. Here's our newest functional accountability chart every quarter, every six months, every year. The team appreciates that because they like seeing how it all fits together. And, and obviously they find themselves on there and they want to know where they fit. So organizational design, number one is culture. Number two is org chart. Number three, people and process. Yep. Uh, obviously such a huge one, but it's the hiring. It's the onboarding. It's getting people in the right spaces on the bus. It's that there's a culture piece 
to that as well. But also that's where I say, you know, that's the, the emphasis on process is where you create the standards. And again, such a common challenge for firms. And I know it's hard, but so many of them don't have process standards. They don't have a documented set of, all right, let's say it's the Berkowitz law firm. Right? I would call it, well, what is the Berkowitz way? Right? That's what we're going to call it, the Berkowitz way. This is how- We, we actually call it the 10 golden rules. So the, the 10 golden rules. <laughs> but we actually have developed a very detailed, S, what we call them SOPs, standard yep. operating uh, exactly. procedures. And it's all in our ClickUp software. Yep. But tell you, you know, when we learned this through EOS, again, the entrepreneurial operating system, like it has been a 360 improvement in our company. Right. Because, you know, we used to do things well, I, I thought. And then as we grew, you know, one person would do it their way and the other person would do it their way. And invariably there'd be mistakes. You know, you couldn't explain to someone, well, you did it wrong because of this. Because it wasn't written down, the, the right way wasn't documented. And now, you know, if we assign something as simple as someone's opening a new uh, a location and we're opening a new GBP, a Google Business Profile, Google Maps, previously called Google My Business, right. you know, a new, a new location um, in Google, we have, you know, eight or 10 steps that are clearly documented. And we ask the client, you know, what are your practice areas? What are your hours? And, you know, basic stuff. But, you know, if we miss one or two of those things, it's really going to hurt the map listings. So everything we do now has steps to it. And those SOPs, standard operating procedures, are, are just a huge win for our firm and hopefully for yours, Mr. and Mrs. Listener. Yeah, they, they absolutely are. How do you scale yeah. without having process standards? Yeah. How do you train without having process standards? How do you ensure a, a level of service for clients without process standards? And yeah, by the way, it's painful. You know, it, sure. we hired a, Tedious. a COO and it was her main project for about six months. Thank God for her because I wouldn't have, you know, it's not in my nature yeah. to be, again, back to EOS. I'm the visionary, not the integrator. Thank God for Laura. Number four, a leadership and growth plan, I believe. Mm -hmm. Leadership development and yeah. growth plan. Uh, I, I just believe that every firm needs to have multiple layers of leadership and it is creating cultivating those leaders with ownership mentality, those true believers that are now in positions where they are able to, and I, I really say it's about two things, they're able to care for their team members and they're able to uh, hold those team members accountable to the standards that we've set. Often you have an absence of leadership and leadership roles within your structure. And so you've got I mean, many times it's, you know, one leader, it's the firm owner and their firm's, you know, 38 people. There's no way that one person can effectively nurture and hold 38 people accountable by themselves. So I'm a huge believer in creating leadership roles. Uh, I think you need to have a plan. I think you need to develop those leaders. And so the book clubs, the, a weekly leadership meeting that has a portion of it devoted to leadership development, to professional development and training. Everywhere that I've done this, I have seen over time, those people who became, that were brought into that leadership, what I call the mid-level leadership team, or even the executive team, which would be the, the step up and the ultimate decision-making body of the firm, over time, those leaders, those people, almost without fail, have told me that was one of the most 
enjoyable, my favorite thing about the work that we did. Sometimes even down to the, I loved our, our 15 minutes at the end of the meeting reading leadership books, talking about our leadership challenges. They love it. They want it. They're hungry for it. Most firms don't do it because it's not seen as directly, well, that's not going to you know, help us get demands out. Well, of course, not directly, but it's going to help you get demands out because great leaders are going to do better at building high performance in their team members. So whenever we see a, a, a firm that has low performing individuals and we say, oh, we well, just fire them or oh, we, you know, <laughs> oh, it's, oh, we fuss about it. It's because we don't coach. We don't lead. We don't train well enough. If we did, even though it's hard to do that, it's hard to set it all up. But once you do, you begin to see the rewards and the benefits. So is there a template for professional development? Like, is there a good set of courses out there if you don't have a starting point? You know, there's actually a ton of stuff out there on leadership. I mean, John Maxwell has his stuff. Simon Sinek has his stuff. But I'll tell you this. I mean, the simplest template, somebody who is a leader in the firm, hopefully an executive, an owner, a COO, a, a high rent, you know, a managing attorney, setting aside, number one, creating a level of leadership, you know, in the firm that probably didn't exist before over departments or teams, getting them together, I would say at least every two weeks. And then in that meeting where you're covering important things about the ongoing work of the firm, setting aside 15 to 20 minutes to read a book together, to look at, to watch uh, snippets or full TED Talks that are only 12 minutes or less. You know, everybody's homework is you're going to go watch this Simon Sinek TED Talk and be prepared to talk about it in the last 15 minutes of our meeting. There's enormous resources uh, on the web for quality leadership. Now, I do, I do think that the leader of the firm wants to make sure that we're not getting a hodgepodge of leadership theory. So I think there needs to be some organization to all right, what books are we reading? What videos are we watching? What TED Talks are we watching? What, what resources are we using? Um, that's the best version of all of this. But that is the simplest thing. And I think you get more out of that than saying, okay, everybody's going to go through you know, John Maxwell's eight steps of leadership online. I mean, okay, that, that's all right. But even when, better, get together and talk about it. Get right? together and talk about it and, and go over the same material together. There's so much out. I mean, as I, you know, Multipliers is a great book. Uh, Start with Why, anything that Simon Sinek uh, writes. John Maxwell's another good one. Good to Great, Jim Collins, the, the classic. Uh, Extreme Ownership um, by Jocko Willink. These are phenomenal resources that you know, radical candor. That's another one. Crucial conversations. <laughs> no, <laughs> that's pretty good off the top of your head. All right. And the fifth uh, step of organizational design, planning and maintenance. Yeah. So I just believe, you know, the simple idea. And I think the first time I ever heard this was from a phenomenal business coach, Andy Bailey and Vern Harnish, the idea of, We've got to spend some time working on the business, not just always working in the business and setting aside intentional time to work on the business. If you do that on a quarterly rhythm and then on an annual rhythm, 
and you're identifying what are the biggest things that we need to work on this quarter and what are, and I call them critical number targets, what are those metrics that are most important, the vital signs, the blood work numbers, whatever you want to think yeah, about. We call it, it a scorecard at POS. Yeah, same. And we started looking at it religiously every month. That's it. Those numbers don't lie. They don't lie. We we got to have so many meetings to have so many uh, qualified prospects to sign so many clients, write so many proposals. Simple things like looking at the numbers every month. You got it. In fact, I I do. And what I, our level 10 weekly executive meeting, I want to have our, what what I call the critical number targets. I want to have those eight numbers in front of us every week. And I want to see real time, you know, where are we at this week? But I'm also looking at our quarterly priorities and then our annual priorities. And our leadership team is looking at that. And then our mid-level leadership team is looking at those every week. It keeps you focused. And I like to, I, for me, and look, I, mine's a little bit different than EOS, but EOS is a fantastic system. So I, I'm a big fan. The way I like to do it is think of the critical number targets. That's the end of business work. Those are the things that we got to watch all the time. That's the, and I also say that's kind of the cake, right? That That's the the cake that we're baking all yeah. the time. That's the work. The icing is how we get better. It's how we get sweeter. And that's the working on the business. So the critical number targets that I'm looking at, at planning actually every week, but then when we look at them on a quarterly and then annual basis, we're setting aside almost a full day every quarter to look at those critical number targets. Have we met our goals? We've set goals and have we met the goals? And then the working on the business part is the setting of priorities. You might call them rocks. Some people call them rocks or you might call them projects, but they're the things that we say, you know what? We're not getting as many fees in the door as we'd like. We're not closing as many cases. Those are our critical numbers. What can we do to fix that problem? Well, that becomes one of the priorities for that quarter or rock or project initiative, whatever term you want to use. So you're combining these two concepts and you're doing it every quarter. And that is how are we doing? Are we reaching goals, setting goals first? Are we reaching goals in the stuff that we do every day, our vital statistics? And then when we're not, what is our process for attacking those problems? That's the planning. That's the setting goals. To me, that is a game changer. And if you're not doing that, end of the year is coming up, great time to get started. No, no, I could keep going because I've got a lot more notes because you had such good stuff. But I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna do one last business question, then right. a couple personal questions. And this one got some groans from the audience and you said, No country club attorneys. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean by that? You know, this is just something that I'm passionate about and, and and I just I just think it works. Look, attorneys who we are in this industry as as firms what what is a country club attorney okay. first a country club attorney is an attorney that cares more about what the guys at the country club that are also attorneys or also or but maybe on the other side the defense yeah. attorneys cares more about what they think cares more about you know who's buying the beers than about really advocating for the client and to be quite honest, it really gets under my skin. It really bothers me because I think about if I was the client and I knew that the outcome of my case was really more about, you know, so-and-so being buddy-buddy with so some, you know, yeah. the guy on the other side, that would really bug me. Now, let me be clear. That doesn't mean that I don't think those relationships have value. 
and that sometimes you can utilize and leverage those relationships for better outcomes. I, I understand that. I'm not saying you shouldn't be friends with, you shouldn't be in the country club. But when you are not being truly aggressive and doing your best work because you don't want to upset your buddy that you just played pickleball with that is trying to lowball you on a case, that is where it's a problem. And for that reason, I, I tell all of my attorneys, hey, I would rather them hate you than really like you. Hopefully you can be really liked and respected. But at the end of the day, in this business, I think you need to be a little crazy. I think you need to be definitely aggressive. And I think you need to bring pain to the other side for them to respect what you're doing. And just by the way, the best in the industry that I've seen and that you hear about, that's what they're doing. doesn't mean they have to be rude. It doesn't mean they have to, you know, you know like Keith Mitnick's great attorney, great trial lawyer. Keith Minnick's a classy individual, but he will knock your head off in the courtroom. In court. And it doesn't mean that he's doing it, you know, in some type of rude way. It's just he's going to beat you. So I always say it's like, it's like two guys that are friends after the boxing match. But in the ring, the point is to knock the other guy out, to beat him. So I also, by the way, just think that great people and competitors in our industry, on whatever side, they respect that. And so it, that, so no country club lawyers means take what we do seriously and advocate for the client. You took an oath for the client, not for your buddy. You know, I, I didn't know in my notes because it's blended together. I, I started running out of space and writing in the corner here, yeah. but you had three beliefs and I didn't know if that was tied to the country club lawyers. So I said before, last question, but honest, honestly, last business question. What are the three beliefs? The three beliefs. Well, uh, those three beliefs, I think we already, if, if I'm understanding your question, Properly, it's the you had belief in purpose. Yeah, belief in purpose, belief in each other, belief in the client. It all boils down to that. Yeah, you just kind of summed it up. But, yeah, but you didn't go one, two, three. Awesome. All right. Well, a couple sort of personal questions. What are your passions or hobbies? What do you do for fun? I love hanging out with my wife and my sons. Uh, we have two boys that are in college, and we're empty nesters. But I, I, I that kind of bumps me out. I, I like the energy in the house. We love to travel absolute travel junkies, love to be outside, love college football, love Texas A&M college football, but they break my heart routinely. So it's an abusive relationship. <laughs> now, uh, we had some fun yesterday. We got to introduce those who haven't discovered Devon. A-Chain. Well, A-Chan. A-Chan. He corrected his name. Yeah, that's right. So that we have a shared love now. He's now a dolphin. An Aggie became a Miami dolphin. There you go. And so how good was this kid in college? What do we have to look forward to? Well, I mean, if he, as you've already seen for the first few games, he's hurt now, but for the first few games as a Dolphin, I mean, what, every eight times he touched the ball, he scores a touchdown. He is lightning. And he is blazing fast, but he's deceptively strong and great vision. So if he gets an opening, he's probably going to take it to the house. Yeah, he has two or three of the fastest measured times in the NFL. Yeah, already. Season. Yeah. And he's <laughs> averaging something crazy, like 12 yards per carry. And, and the next guy's at like six. Yeah, so, if he hadn't uh, got hurt, I, I he rookie of the year without question. Not to get into football. Hey, <laughs> hopefully he still has a shot. Yep. It's a question I've asked on the podcast for a dozen or more years. What are some of the apps or tools that you're using for personal productivity or, you know, things just making your life a little easier? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. I honestly live 
uh, and this may sound simplistic, I'm sure there are a lot of people that have much better tools or much more sophisticated than I am. I live out of Google Docs and Google Sheets. I organize everything out of Google Docs and Google Sheets. Shared sheets. Yeah, yeah. sharing sheets Your with your team and yeah, for accountability purposes. Uh, but even even for my own life, I mean, I keep up with my finances. I keep up with my travel schedule. I keep up with my reimbursements. I keep up with uh, I mean, whatever it is. I've got a I've got a spreadsheet for yeah. it in Google Sheets. Uh, so that's it's, it's amazing. How many times, like, for my, my mind goes there, Google yeah. Sheets, if I'm on a, a board of directors or a committee or a charity or yeah. my, uh, I was on the board of my synagogue, you know, everything's disorganized. You put it in a Google Sheet, share the sheet, and all of a sudden you've cleaned things up and everyone's like, why didn't we have this before? Amazing. <laughs> and it's technology has been around for yeah. a long, long time. I will say one little caveat or one little piece on that that is silly but has saved my tail multiple times recently and that is now air tags uh, and i used to be an android guy and everybody made fun of me for being an android guy and then yeah th th then i got static for taking in or getting an iphone because i i am a mac guy and all this so i said well, i'm just going to do that i'll get the iphone i leave my laptop i fall asleep on planes a lot and leave my laptop in the sleeve uh in front of me in the in the seat in front of me yeah uh that's happened three times in the last three months, which doesn't say a lot about me. Uh, well, it maybe says, does yeah. say a lot about me, but AirTags and Find My, uh, you know, the ability to do that on my iPhone has gotten my laptop multiple times and has been helped us track luggage when we were That's a here. good one. That's so, a good one. Thank yeah. you. And this is, hope, hopefully you can do this as well off the top of your head. Do you listen to any podcasts or watch any YouTubes? You know, interestingly enough, the podcast that I don't spend a ton of time on podcasts other than industry podcasts. So, so many people, I, I like what they're doing in our industry on podcasts. I mean, Attorney Early, it, you know, he's doing a great oh, podcast. Chris, a, yeah, Chris Early. Early. Uh, Charlie Mann has a great podcast. I'm a big Jocko Willink fan. I'm a big Joe Rogan fan. Uh, that's a little bit more entertaining. I saw Jocko. Two weeks ago in uh, here at, at ClickFunnels. Oh, really? He was awesome, yeah. Yeah, well, you know, this might be the first that anybody hears of it. I'm working on trying to get a, a very exclusive attorney event uh, or industry event with Jocko. And I'm in contact with his team. And we're trying to work out the logistics of how that might happen. He's expensive, but, I mean, he's a hero of mine. I just yeah. think he, he gets uh, that's it. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm a yeah. big fan. Let me know. We'll let everyone else yeah. know on yeah. the podcast. Last question, where can we find you? Contact info and how can folks access you? Yeah, uh, I'm happy to give out my phone number, 979-219-1404. I have about eight email addresses given the firms that I work with, but the, my personal one is Biggs, period, William at gmail.com. And I'm pretty easy to find on LinkedIn. Just look up Bill Biggs and you'll see all the silly stuff that I put out there about leading and culture and law firms. Bill, this was awesome. Thank you so much for making the time. Jay, what a privilege. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the 10 Golden Rules of Internet Marketing for Law Firms podcast. Please send questions and comments to podcast at 10goldenrules.com. That is podcast at 10goldenrules.com. 